Welcome to Infoblox Threat Talk, where you'll find the latest thinking on how to tap the full potential of the cloud while making your network more reliable, secure, and automated. Hi, and welcome to Infoblox's new podcast. This is Cricket Lou. I am the chief DNS architect at Infoblox, and joining me is my old friend and former colleague, Matt Larson. Hey, Matt. Hey, Cricket. Thanks for asking me to be here. Sure, of course. For the few people in the DNS community who don't know you, uh, do you want to say a little bit about, about what you do now? Sure. I am right now uh, Vice President of Research at ICANN. I work in the office of the CTO for the CTO. And the idea there is that ICANN coordinates the internet system of unique identifiers, uh, which DNS is probably the biggest one that people know ICANN for. And the idea is that there should be people at ICANN who really understand those identifier systems. And that's what the Office of the CTO does. And I lead a small team of researchers and we get to do interesting things, basically poking at DNS and other things. Yeah, sounds like a real plum job, at least for somebody interested in DNS. (laughs) If you didn't like DNS, it would be a horrible job. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I think at this point, I think you and I combined have how many decades of DNS experience? Five plus? <laughs> Probably. I, I think uh, late 80s for me. Yeah, yeah, for me too. So so really probably 60. And just so folks are, are not confused, this is not the Ask Mr. DNS podcast, which is our other podcast that talks about DNS matters. But Matt was kind enough to join me on this podcast to talk about today DNS security best practices. And before the podcast, I had mooted, I guess, that there are actually different categories of best practices in DNS security. For example, there are best practices in configuring your DNS server, and then there are best practices in securing your zone data, and there are best practices in securing the accounts that you might use to access your own data, manage your data through your registrar or through some DNS hosting company, and there are probably even best practices related to securing the platform on which your DNS server runs. So I thought we should probably get that out of the way rather than just sort of introducing a whole hodgepodge of possibly unrelated best practices. But does that does that sound like a, a reasonable a reasonable breakdown, Matt? That does. That makes sense. So it's sort of uh, server, zone data, and provider slash platform. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and maybe we'll, yeah. And let's start then with, uh, with some of the, the DNS server configuration. That's something that I haven't thought about in a while, but I remember some of the basics, like for example, on internet facing authoritative DNS servers, you generally want to do things like disable recursion, right? Yeah, that was going to be the one I was going to suggest if you didn't get to it first. Uh, and that's that's really important. I mean, the good news today is that there's been so much collective effort and understanding in writing recursive servers that at this point, we have a pretty good idea how to make them sufficiently paranoid that it's very hard to cache poison them. In other words, it's very hard to stuff things into their cache that shouldn't be there. But of course, it's not impossible. And I'm sure we're going to get a chance to talk about solutions to that later in the podcast. But that being said, if you have a recursive server and it's internet-facing 
you really need to be careful because there is the possibility that a bad guy could cause bad stuff to get in that cache, and then you would unwittingly distribute it to people who query you. So maybe we should go even further. I mean, a good best practice is completely separating servers that offer recursion with authoritative servers, or from authoritative servers, yeah. I should say. Yeah, I mean, we back when back when we ran Acme Byte and Wire, we certainly made that recommendation to, to our customers that for any internet-facing applications, you separate recursive uh, DNS servers exposed to the internet, which are generally forwarders, and your internet-facing authoritative name servers. That, that's a good idea. Modern servers have uh, all kinds of ACLs, access control lists, that, so you can lock them down in different ways. So if you have a server that, that does offer recursion, you could still lock it down to you know, specific uh, networks or subnets. So in other words, only your networks, if it is uh, if it is internet facing or has to be for for some reason, but just just in general, locking down this applies to really inter any internet service, but uh, especially recursive servers, locking them down so that they're only accepting queries from people that they should be talking to. Yeah. So in bind parlance, that might be an allow query based access control list, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we we'd probably want to make sure that our recursive DNS server only accepted queries coming from our internal namespace people out on the internet couldn't point a, a stub resolver at it and, and send it a query. And we might, and I think I, I remember making the recommendation in, in some cases that people even use a, a belt and suspenders approach and duplicate that kind of control on their internet firewall to protect the, the, uh, the recursive DNS server. Sure. That, that sort of thing never, never hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else they should do on the on the authoritative DNS server? Um, I mean, I, I suppose dynamic updates are off by default. We definitely don't want to <laughs> accept dynamic updates on any internet-facing DNS server, and you probably also want to limit zone transfers from that that DNS server. You don't want everybody to be able to transfer your zones. Absolutely, and the good news is that those are typically off by default in every configuration, or I should say, every implementation that I'm aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in, in old versions of bind, weren't zone transfers open? I think you're right. I think really, really old versions. But if anybody's running those, they <laughs> they have worse yeah. problems. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They get what they what they deserve. And then I suppose on on the internet facing recursives on the forwarders, we should we should also talk about the use of DNSSEC validation and whether whether or not folks should turn that on. That's a, a safeguard, of course, against cache poisoning of those recursive name servers and in turns on cryptographic validation of data that is actually signed using DNSSEC. What's your feeling today about whether or not they should use DNSSEC validation? Well, I really think people should. I really think that should be a best practice. In fact, ICANN recently put out a statement that encouraged DNSSEC deployment you know, in, in, in all areas. And that was largely in response to the recent attacks in the news that, that you mentioned. It does require enabling DNSSEC. It does require a few more resources because you're asking your recursive server to do more work. It's going to, in addition to all the chasing down of responses, it's also going to have to do cryptographic validation. And in some cases, you know, multiple validations, depending on the complexity of the resolution path. But really, that is the best protection against cache poisoning, against someone trying to slip something bad into your uh, recursive server's cache and, and make you go somewhere that you don't want to go. So I really think 
the internet would be a uh, better and safer place if we could get to a point where DNSSEC validation was enabled by default. And, and that that's just the assumption that people made that, oh, that's just something that I need to do. And I need to make sure that my servers are, you know, sized accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. As you say, they should be prepared to probably use a little bit more horsepower on whatever platform they're running their recursive DNS server on if they're running really close to the edge, which most people aren't. Most people have plenty of, of, of headroom. Right. Um, I mentioned that only a little reluctantly since I don't think I, I would not want anybody to ever not turn on DNSSEC validation out of resource concerns. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's somebody who's really stressing the particular hardware. They're the only people who would have to be concerned. Right. And, and I would say they, they have to be concerned anyway, even without DNSSEC validation on, there's always the possibility that they get, you know, increased recursive load organically and <laughs> that, that pushes them over the edge. So they really ought to probably upgrade to a, a more capable platform, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I, one, other, one other thing that I, I often tell people who are talking about or contemplating a session, um, that they should expect some interesting new failures, right? They may see resolution failures that they haven't seen in the past because sometimes people make mistakes when administering zone sign using DNSSEC. They'll they'll mess up a, a key rollover or they'll forget forget to resign the zone or something like that. And and unfortunately in DNSSEC, the burden of those operational mistakes is is borne really by the people who are doing the validation. But again, not a reason not to do DNSSEC validation, just something to be aware of. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the good news is that we're far enough into the age of DNSSEC deployment that we've worked out some of the initial complexities. People have realized that DNSSEC on the authoritative side is complicated enough that it really needs to be automated to, to work well. And we should probably make the distinction here that there's really two sides to DNSSEC, right? That we, we've started talking here about the validation side, which is when you receive responses, uh, they're cryptographically signed and you validate that the signatures are correct. But there's the other side of that, which is making the signatures in the first place. And that's called signing your zone. Uh, to enable DNSSEC on zones that you're authoritative for, uh, it requires every time you make a change to the zone, uh, you need to cryptographically sign the updated information. And there's more to it than that because these signatures have a temporal validity. They're only good for a certain period of time, and that, that's by design. And that means that uh, once you start signing your zone, you kind of step onto a, a treadmill, and you have to keep going. You have to keep re-signing it to make sure that those signatures don't expire because that's also a way that validation can fail on the recursive. The data mm -hmm. might be might be correctly signed, it might cr cryptographically validate, but the signature might not be valid anymore. So that, that's another failure mode. Yes, exactly, exactly. But I, but I guess just, yeah. I, I got off on a bit of a tangent there. The point I was trying to make is that I think that there's now uh, sufficient automation and uh, hosting providers and registrars are offering, you know, turnkey, check the box, DNS, DNSSEC, you maybe can say something about that as well. And it makes it much easier on the authoritative side to sign your zones. And so I think we're, we're not in the early days anymore where people were doing everything by hand. And every time you turned around, there was potentially somebody messed something up. And therefore, on the recursive side, it would fail validation. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, way back when we first did automation of DNSSEC in uh, in NIOS at Infoblox, we thought kind of out in out in front. At this point, there's good automation within Bind itself. Some of our competitors have <laughs> pretty good uh, have pretty good automation. There are other systems out there, and then a lot of the DNS hosting services that you would use out on the internet for hosting your internet-facing zone data also support DNSSEC and have automation built in. So there's really no longer a, a good excuse for not signing your, your internet-facing zones. Yeah, let's talk just a little more about the, the failure mode, though. If you have DNSSEC validation enabled on a recursive, uh, I just want to highlight what you said, which is you do now have other ways for that recursive uh, to return errors that it would not previously have returned. And, and I think somewhat unfortunately when DNSSEC was being designed, the decision was made to not have a separate error code or a separate response code to indicate that validation had failed. And instead, yeah. what, what we decided to do, we being the collective internet DNS engineering community, we decided to effectively overload the server failed response code. That's sort of a generic error that's like, you know, something went wrong on the server trying to process this query. And what that means now is that there's no definitive indication when you get a response back that it was the result of a validation failure. Instead, you get a serve fail, which uh, you know, as, as longtime DNS people may know, you get from other things like uh, the primary not being able to correctly parse the zone file when it loads or the secondary uh, expiring a zone because it can't reach the primary. In fact, those are the sort of canonical serve fail, uh, server failed examples. Can you think of any others, Cricket? I think you might get a, let me think, I, you might get a, a serve fail sort of transitively from a recursive if it queried an authoritative and got a serve fail from it. Oh, of course, you know, right, yeah. And there may other, be other situations where the recursive would turn, return a serve fail if it, uh, you know, if it, 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 it couldn't, for example, if it were referred to authoritatives and the authoritatives turned out not to be authoritative, a, a lame delegation effectively, doesn't that return a serve fail? Right. I think if the result of trying to contact all the authoritatives for a zone under certain failure modes, they all fail, then yes, you'll get the, you're absolutely right, you'll get the server failed. So my point here is that there's not going to be in, in big uh, flashing letters, DNSSEC validation failure. <laughs> Instead, you right. have to know, oh, it's this, it's this server failed response. One sort of quip I like to make about DNSSEC is that DNSSEC uh, doesn't ensure that you get the right answer. It ensures that you don't get the wrong answer, right? It's possible for the bad guy to get in there and uh, mount a denial of service attack and um, cause your recursive to, to never get the proper responses with the proper signatures. And so therefore, DNSSEC can't work around that, right? But what DNSSEC can do and what it does do is if it sees bad data, it just doesn't pass it on to you. It stops it from getting to the end user. Right, right, which is, which is pretty important these days. So we've, we've kind of bled over a little bit into the, uh, well, first of all, I guess we sh I should ask, do you think we're, we're kind of more or less done with the broad strokes of how we secure DNS servers? So exposed to the internet? Yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. So it seems like we've bled over a little bit into how to protect our, our zone data because we've already talked about, about signing our zone data using DNSSEC, which is certainly a, a best practice. And I'm wondering, are there, are there other things that we should recommend that folks do? 
Well, so what about syntactically? Are there things that you don't want in your in your zone? I mean, this is maybe this is kind of a corner case, but I'll mention it anyway. You know, there are certain things that um, you know, DNS is like a toolbox full of uh, sharp tools and and loaded guns potentially if you're if you're not wary. And one thing is uh, there's the C name. You know, you can have. Uh, one name really be an alias for another name, or I like to say it's like a pointer to uh, another name. Although don't confuse that pointer with PTR records. Um, <laughs> the pointer record itself. Yeah. And so it is possible to do things like have uh, A be a C name to B, and B is be a C name to C, and C be C name to D, and so on. You could have a really long chain of C, C names. And sometimes chains of C names are absolutely necessary, right? Like to use a content delivery network. Uh, typically, mm -hmm. that's the entry point into uh, a CDN. But if you have a super long chain of C names unnecessarily, that doesn't do anything except increase resolution time. And of course, the pathological case is A is a C name to B and B is a C name back to A, you know, right. having a loop in a C name chain. And the good news is, you know, recursive servers are not going to go into an infinite loop. They, they all have different limits of how long they're willing to chase C names. But uh, that is an example that I can think of, of something that you could do with your zone data that's uh, syntactically incorrect and something you wouldn't want to do. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there are some other things that fall into what I would think of as the general category of zone hygiene. You don't want to have RFC 1918 addresses, for example, in your internet-facing zone data. In fact, I think RFC 1918 or whatever its successor is actually says you're not supposed to do that, and yet sometimes people do. You probably don't want to put any kind of any kind of data that you don't want available to the outside world into your zones, even if you think, oh, well, nobody knows this domain name in my zone. Nobody's going to look it up. Sooner or later, it's a good bet somebody's somebody's going to going to see that domain name in the wild and potentially look up that data. Right. You know, this maybe is on the edge of applying to zone data, but you, since you mentioned lame delegations uh, earlier, that is when you have your set of authoritative servers for a zone that are listed in the uh, NS records at the top of the zone. And a lame delegation is when the zone data claims by there being an NS record that says this server is authoritative for this zone. But then when you query that server, it, it's not authoritative. And that, that's called a lame delegation. And so I suppose you'd want to make sure that any NS records you're publishing in your, in your zones really do correspond and point to servers that are indeed authoritative for the zone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there, there are generally tools that you can use to, to check delegations and make sure they're, they're correct. We used to have a, a, a grab bag of tools back when we administered uh, hp.com that, that would do that sort of thing. I don't know what's what's still out there. Whether Doc, for example, is still out there, but <laughs> there used yes. to exist tools. I'm sure that they have descendants that are out there now. Yeah, and I guess as long as we're talking about NS records, and another thing to be mindful of is, of course, uh, it's very confusing. Can be confusing that NS records appear in two places, right? They appear in a zone's parent zone as the delegation. That they actually actually cause that's what causes the delegation is the presence of those NS records, and then they're in the zone itself. So these two sets of NS records, and every time you can have two sets of something, the sets can potentially diverge. So as a best practice, you almost always want the set of NS records that is doing the delegation. So this would for most people this would be the set that they maintain at their registrar. 
uh, you would want that to be the same as the set that's actually in your zone itself. Yeah. If you're, if you're an InfoBlox customer, customer, there's actually a feature of NIOS. I forget what it's called, but it's a consistency checker that you can turn on, and it'll, it'll periodically check to make sure that the NS records from your parent zone match the authoritative set of NS records in your, in your own zone, and it'll report any discrepancies. That's maybe a good segue to talking a little bit about the recent attacks, the ones that were attributed to Iran, although we don't know, uh, I think, with certainty that they were, they were actually carried out by, by Iran, but that resulted in, in some nasty man-in-the-middle compromises of, of big organizations around the internet. Should we spend a little time to talk about sort of what happened? Sure. I, I, I think one takeaway that, that I have is that it seemed to be a, a grab bag of different kinds of things. I don't think anybody's completely sure of everything that happened, but people have given examples of attacks that they've seen in the wild. And I think some of the confusion early on might have been that different people were seeing different things and saying, oh, oh this is what it is. And somebody else was saying, well, no, it's not that, it's, it's this. And they <laughs> maybe were seeing different aspects of the, the same attack. I mean, one, one thing that um, you know, has been reported happened is, you know, since we were just talking about NS records, um, that if you think of, in many cases, the names of your name servers for your zone they might not be in the zone itself, named in the zone. In other words, so if we have the example.com zone, the NS records might be at, you know, something dnshoster.com, right, in, a, in, another, in another zone completely. And if you want to compromise example.com, one way is the, the frontal attack, right? You go after example.com, you try to figure out how to get the bad data in that zone. But a more subtle attack is you find out who the name servers are for example.com, which of course is, is easy, right? That's public. And then you go after the zones that contain the name server names, right? So let's say that example.com, one of the name servers, the authoritative servers is let's just say ns.dnshoster.com. So if you can compromise the dnshoster.com zone and change the IP address of the name server ns.dnshoster.com, then any of the queries that, for example.com, that go to that name, they could go to a server under your control instead. And then you've effectively got control for a slice of the example.com traffic, and you can send it somewhere else potentially, like a, a, you know, be the man in the middle, send, uh, send traffic, send web traffic to a proxy, let's say, that, that siphons off usernames and passwords and, and sends the other data through. Mm -hmm. There were a number of other compromises that had to do with credentials, that had to do with someone having access to or stealing access to authentication credentials that were used by the, these organizations, either to manage their registrar data or their, uh, that were used to access their DNS hosting dashboards and, and manage, their, manage their, their authoritative DNS data. I mean, that would that would really do uh, a, a tremendous amount of damage, right? I mean, either one amounts to complete control over your internet-facing DNS data. Absolutely, right. The the you know maybe I so I started with uh, describing a more subtle attack, right? Which is that uh, you know the the name servers for a zone don't change, but you attack 
the names of those name servers. But what you described is absolutely correct. That's a, a much easier, that, that's going in the front door rather than climbing through the window, right? If the front door is unlocked, if, if you have the credentials and you can just change the name servers at the registrar, for example, .com, to just add your own name server, then you don't, you're not compromising y anything else. You just go, go right in and make the change and you're done. Yeah, yeah, and 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 in this particular case, it uh, it allowed them not just to gain control over that inter internet facing zone data, but then they could stand up mail servers and web servers that would impersonate, basically act as proxies for the real, honest to goodness web servers and mail servers. And uh, because they had control over the the DNS data for these organizations, they could then get legitimate TLS certificates or X509 certificates from Let's Encrypt install them on those intermediate mail and web servers and then just intercept all the, all of the legitimate traffic going to uh, going to the the mail or web server which was which which was pretty damaging yeah absolutely it's especially the getting the certificates i mean even though uh, i mean how many of us have just uh, blindly clicked through some browser warning and yeah 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 i just want to get to i want to get to the site and i think that's behavior that uh, a, a lot of people do and and that in and of itself is not good right to, if your browser's telling you something's wrong with the certificate you ought to stop and try to figure out what's going on but in this case as you pointed out if you've got a valid cert you don't even see the browser warning you just have no idea that your traffic could be being proxied and intercepted right Right. And, and I guess that's, that's really because in most cases, these CAs, the certification authorities, issue certs based on your sort of demonstrated control over, um, over the DNS data in the zone. So if you're looking to get a cert issued for www.example.com, they might say, okay, put a text record that looks like this and attach that to www.example.com. And if you do that, you've sort of proven that, that you own that resource and they'll issue the cert. So if you if you've got control over over somebody's DNS hosting dashboard, or if you've you're able to change their delegation information, you can certainly put whatever uh, text record you want to um, uh, you know attach that to whatever domain name in the zone you, you'd like. Absolutely. So so while what we're talking about are multiple techniques that combine to make you know pretty damaging attack. What some of this boils down to is it, it's not DNS specific. It's just sort of. Mm -hmm just general security hygiene specific, which is, um, you know, use, use strong passwords at your uh, registrar and uh, your DNS hosting provider if, if you use an outsourced solution. And if available, uh, you know, even turn on two-factor authentication. Right, right. The Department of Homeland Security actually, actually issued an emergency directive to federal government agencies in the wake of these attacks. And, and it's, it's really a good set of recommendations to follow for anybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a federal government agency or not. And uh, they made the re exactly the recommendations that, that you mentioned, Matt, along with one sort of subtle or maybe not so subtle corollary, which was if you're using two-factor authentication, don't use email <laughs> as yeah. your second factor. <laughs> which which makes total sense when you think about it, because if somebody's got control over your DNS data, they can they can send your email wherever. And then they also had a few other recommendations. Um, they because there was the possibility that federal government agencies' data had been compromised, they advised them to go back and basically eyeball their data to try to detect whether it had been modified, and also to look at a periodic report on the issuance of X509 certificates to see if any certificates had been issued that the, the organizations themselves had not requested. Mm -hmm. 
I can't think of one DNS specific angle to to this beyond just good security and password hygiene. And that's um, some registrars uh, allow you to put your domains on what's called a registry lock or, or, you know, there, and there are different, there are different variations of this sort of the the most, um, I hate to say powerful, but um, maybe that is the right word here. You know, the registrar can basically say to the red, to the registry, lock this domain down and don't allow any changes until I get back to you with the, the proper credentials. And different mm-hmm. registrars, not everybody supports it. it you know, there are different implementations, but that's a way to effectively lock down your, your zone so the bad, guy, the bad guy can't change it. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the bad guy has your, the, the credentials to your registrar account, could they remove the lock? Um, typically not. Typically it requires, and again, different registrars do this differently, but typically that's the main feature of this feature is uh, that mm-hmm. y- you have to do more than just the usual interaction with, with the registrar. You have to do something above and beyond, which is presumably harder for an attacker who only has the credentials to do. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great then. That would certainly be worth worth doing, and I'll bet some of the organizations affected by that attack wish they had done it. <laughs> Well, have we have we exhausted our <laughs> our recollection of uh, DNS security best practices? Is there anything anything uh, else on your mind? Anything that we haven't uh, that we haven't touched upon? I can't think of anything. We we, we had the long pause there, which is uh, as we know from our own podcast. Uh, that's usually the indication that uh, you've exhausted the topic. Sometimes beaten it into the ground, even. But I don't, <laughs> that's right. We've done that here. I don't. I don't feel like we got off into the weeds at all. I think we everything we talked about was uh, really important and legitimate steps you can take or uh, issues to be mindful of. Yeah, yeah. I, I will put in a plug here for our other podcast, though, for for folks who are interested in in uh, DNS security specifically or in DNS more generally. We'd love to have them listen to our our DNS podcast, which is called uh, Ask Mister DNS, and is available from www.askmrdns, askmrdns.com. That's right, isn't it? Or, or did we did we not have that one? Do we have the, only have the one with the dash? Uh, just the one with the dash. I think it's sort of a long running joke that I, I believe we actually have the one without the dash. And uh, this, <laughs> do we? <laughs> yeah, this is this is the shoemaker's children situation, right? The, the the DNS people can't be bothered to set up the domain, so it's it's ask dash is the one that I am certain works. And, and we we also accept questions at uh, at uh, what's the proper uh, email address? So, yeah, mrdns, Mr. DNS at ask dash Mr. DNS dot com. Yeah, yeah, well, fantastic. Um, thanks so much for for joining us for this uh, inaugural Infoblogs podcast, uh, Matt. I really do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Well, thanks everybody, and tune in again for another of Infoblox's podcast. You've been listening to Infoblox Threat Talk. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about maintaining a secure, always-on network that enables digital transformation, visit www.infoblox.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.